Well, my name is Dustin Maddox, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met yet, I would love to connect with you after in the lobby just to get to know you and, uh, and chat. I love chatting. So that chat may turn into coffee. Who knows? It would be great. So we are continuing this morning our series called The Irreligious Jesus. We're looking at these snapshots of Jesus' life and ministry in which he kind of comes up into conflict with the religious leaders of his day that lead ultimately to his uh, unjust uh, crucifixion and ultimately climaxing in his resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Easter Sunday, but we're journeying with Jesus in this season in the church calendar, this, this time in which we kind of focus in on Jesus' life called Lent. And Lent are, is, is this season of 40 days plus Sundays that we kind of refocus, we relinquish uh, the things that perhaps get in the way of our relationship with God or that are distractions. We realign ourselves with with who God is. And all of this is in light of the fact that we begin this journey with the reminder uh, on this, this day called Ash Wednesday that we are from the dust and to the dust we shall return. In other words, we are reminded that we are fragile and frail human beings that ultimately one day we will die. And so what is the hope of the good news? What is the point to be to the point of following Jesus when that's the case? And this is a particularly uh, real, live question for me personally right now. A few weeks ago, I I stood up here and told you that I uh, had a family emergency that took me to Atlanta, Georgia. And um, that family emergency was that a, um, a student who I was her youth pastor uh, was killed by a drunk driver Uh, while driving her mom to the airport early in the morning the day after the Super Bowl. And her her mother was severely injured in this car accident. And so I flew out to be with the family and kind of engage in the grieving process right alongside of them. And uh, this beloved person, her name was Beth Buchanan, and she, uh, there's a picture of her right here. Uh, no? No picture. Uh, do you have the other slides? Okay. So no picture. But um, she uh, was a person who probably did as much or more than anyone uh, in framing my sense of, of what it means to, to be a pastor and, and encouraged my development as a human being. 
And, and so this is a, a, a fresh question. Like, what does Jesus have to say into moments like this? And there's a, there's a quip in, 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 in and among preachers where uh, goes, preach from your wounds and not from your scars. And so today, I, I, I'm stepping into the tension uh, that this is a live and fresh and painful wound for me. And yet, I have other scars from other losses that I have walked and navigated through the lens of the life of Jesus from which I can share a few insights that I've had along the way. But it's in these moments and in a season like this where we wrestle and we come into contact with some of our below the surface and, and almost unconscious assumptions and presuppositions about the world and about God and about life. And so it's, it's in a moment like this where we bump up against the question like, if God is all-loving, then when things like this happen, th- that raises the question, then is God all-powerful? If God is all-loving, then is God all-powerful? Because God, if God is all-powerful, God could have prevented this loss, this catastrophe, this grief, this illness, this or that other thing. And so if God is all-loving but not all-powerful, then, then maybe that's just not God. And that's a real question. That's a real answer that some people give. But I think there's also a, a worse alternative than that, uh, which is to flip this question around. If God is all-powerful, if God could have prevented things and loss and catastrophe and disaster and suffering, and God didn't, then is God all-loving? And that's a really, really scary proposition to think about. And so I think in my experience and what I've seen and known and learned about in my navigating questions like this. And, and let me just pause and, and, and say, what, I'm in, what we're engaging in this morning is, is, is more like physical therapy in light of suffering rather than like triage treatment of suffering. What we're going to talk about is, is how do we move forward in light of suffering rather than just treating the acuteness of the pain of suffering. My response to you who might be acutely suffering right now would be not to give you a sermon, but would be to give you a hug. And so what we're talking about today is is more physical therapy. It's more rehabilitation after suffering and loss. And so one strategy in, in that way that most people that I have known deal with this question is to 
out of a sense of self-preservation, walk away from God in light of suffering because they fall on either one or two sides of these questions. Either God could have prevented it and didn't, therefore God is not all-loving, or God is all-loving but didn't prevent it, so therefore God is not all-powerful, and then what kind of God is that? And so out of this sense of of self-preservation, we step back and step away and try and figure things out. And, and when we do that, we, we have two options, I would say, two common options of responding. And the first is despair. That life is purely meaningless. It's all random, and it, it, it eventually is going to end in the heat death of the universe. And so any fleeting moment of joy or meaning or whatever that you might have is fleeting. Is he okay? You okay, Leo? Somebody have a water bottle you can hand him? I just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> All right. We can despair, and we have these fleeting moments of life and joy Uh, But really, ultimately, those are just some neurobiological chemical reaction that happens in our body that is just what it is. Like, we can enjoy that for what it is, but that's just it. There's no greater meaning or purpose to life or joy or anything beyond just the momentariness. And so, in a response of despair, like, nothing ultimately matters, the, the response is to simply just try to assign meaning to an event or a person or whatever in, in the moment. But that's a, a really tall order, and so I think we tend to go to the other side, which is to detach. And this, this response is, is heavily influ, influenced by, by sort of classical Buddhist teaching or, or, or sort of what, is, what it's come to be experienced as in our modern time as, as more of a mindfulness approach, that suffering ultimately is caused merely by being overly attached to people and things. And so the response is to sort of disconnect or disattach or detach from people or things to a healthy amount so that you don't suffer any more than you already will. And I, I, I think both of these have their... There's sort of understandable merits in terms of approaches, but I think what we often don't have a conversation about both of these responses, both despair and detachment, is that ultimately these are are value-laden and faith-laden claims. You are holding out hope, or you are trusting some interpretation about suffering or loss or grief that you ultimately cannot prove. We don't know, for example, that the world, the universe, is going to ultimately end in a heat death. We don't know, for example, that the point of life is to eliminate personal suffering, that there's no point to personal suffering. We don't know that death ultimately is the end. And so, is there 
another way to respond? Is there another way to navigate grief and loss that doesn't fall into the meaninglessness of despair or into disaffected detachment? Is there a way in the way of Jesus through pain and loss that makes it bearable by deepening our dependence on God? We're going to look at a story this morning from John chapter 11. And this is the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So, spoiler alert. The setup is that this is a biography of Jesus' life, written by one of his closest followers and closest friends named John who was himself an eyewitness to this event. And so you might be, as, as we read along, or even just hear the, the framing of this as the raising of a person from the dead, you might already be suspicious and like, yeah, 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 this is metaphorical, or this is just a story. I just want to remind you that even with the metaphor that you can pull out of this, this is written by some, and given to somebody given to us by somebody who was an eyewitness of this event. And you'll see the response at the end that I think will help reframe this for us in terms of why the response is what it is. But one of Jesus' closest friends is dead. And here's where it starts. John chapter 11. So the sisters of Lazarus, named Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, who was about a two days walk away from where they were. Lord, they said, the one you love, meaning Lazarus, is sick. Lord, the one you love is sick. So what's Jesus going to do when he hears the fact that his beloved friend is sick? Well, he does something odd. He stays put. He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So he stays put where he is, and while he's there, his friend dies. So this is a strange thing. However, if, as we read through the whole story, which, which we don't have the full amount of time for this morning, we come to see that for Jesus to go back to Judea, where in the chapter right before this, he was just run out of town, narrowly avoiding being stoned to death, was almost a guarantee of his own, signing his own death certificate. If he went back, and provide some sort of miraculous healing for his friend, it would be the nail in his coffin, so to speak. And so there's a tension here. Will Jesus go back or not? Because the religious leaders of his day want him dead already, and they are looking for another excuse. So Jesus goes, Lazarus has already been laid in a tomb, the grieving process is underway, and 
Martha, Lazarus's sister, hears that Jesus has arrived. And so she comes out to him, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Martha, her response to Jesus is that she knows and has seen and trusts that ultimately Jesus is all-powerful. And that because of his connection to God, God will do for Jesus whatever he asks God to do. Jesus is all-powerful. But at this point, if we read between the lines, we can, we can see that what she's not quite sure she can trust yet is if God, if Jesus, is all-loving. If you had been here, but you weren't, but you're here now, so can you do something about it? And so Jesus sees this as a bit of a teachable moment, and he responds by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. This is one of several I am statements in John's biography of Jesus' life that reveal that Jesus is God, the God of the Old Testament revealed in clear as day light in Jesus. But Jesus reveals his identity in ways that also conceal. This is an enigmatic statement. We don't know what this means. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I was like, I don't even know if I understand it. What does this, what does this mean? Well, the, the Bible professor Dale Bruner translates and interprets this in, in this way that I think is helpful. It's, it's, it's sort of a wooden translation, but it, gets, it helps us get closer to what Jesus is inviting us into. The person believing in me or trusting in me, even when that person dies, like Lazarus has, they will live again. That is to say, every single individual who is alive and believing into me, like you, Martha, will never die an eternal death. So what Jesus is saying here to Martha and through Martha to us is that when we trust in Jesus, death does not have the last word. That death is not the most powerful, definitive, authoritative force in the universe. Trusting Jesus is more powerful than even the most sure and real thing that we know to be true about life. 
And so he asks, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I am the resurrection and the life. I am all-powerful. Do you trust that I am all-loving? And so Martha goes and, and retrieves her sister Mary and brings her to Jesus, and, and she asks the same question or makes the same statement. Jesus, had you been here, my brother would not have died. And she starts weeping. And we continue. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then perhaps the most potent verse in the whole of the library of scriptures. Jesus wept. And this is not the tear, the single tear that you see upon a beautiful sunset. This is the deep, thick throes of grief. Another way we could say this is that Jesus bawled. Jesus broke down weeping. And here we begin to see this tension continue. Jesus clearly demonstrates his love for Martha, for Mary, and ultimately for Lazarus. But what will he do? Will he do anything? Because if he does something, it will mean his life. And, and this next scene, I think we have to, can, can best be read in the, the, King, the old English of the King James Version translation of these two verses. So Jesus said, take ye away the stone, meaning of in front of, of the tomb. Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. I get a crack out of that every time. For he hath been in there for four days. Lord, he stinketh. And what's happening here is at the time, the rabbis said that your soul lingered in your body for three days after you had died. But then on the fourth day, you could pretty well assume that there was no hope. And this makes a lot of sense given the, the sort of awareness of biology at the time that sometimes it may appear as though somebody had died only to be proven wrong. That it was just the appearance of death. And so just hold on, let's wait three days to see if anything happens, and then after that period of waiting, then, then that's the confirmation. And so what's happening here is, is that this has been four days. There is no hope. Lazarus is gone. 
He's dead. The stone has been rolled away. And he stinketh. And here is the reality that this story confronts us with. Lazarus is, is dead and decaying in part because he is without hope. <laughs> he is without Jesus in this moment. And the same is true for you and for me. That without Jesus, we are without hope. That all we can trust, all we can know, all we can guarantee is the decay and death of our life and everything that we know and love. And that stinketh. That's a really heavy, difficult, tragic way to live. You and I, without Jesus, that is the reality of the situation. That in God's eyes, God's good creation continues to reject grace, to reject relationship in small and large ways. And that leads ultimately to an eternal separation from God. But here's the good news not where this story ends and it's not where your story has to end when he had said this Jesus called out in a loud voice Lazarus come out the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. In the beginning, the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos waters of the deep. And in a loud voice, God cried out, Let there be life. And now, amen, April, now this is a moment of new creation. That the God of all creation has power over the chaos of our life and over the reality of our death. And the word brings life. Jesus brings life. When you hear Jesus' word, the question is, will you come out. Will you come out of the tomb of your despair? Will you come out of the tomb of your detachment? Will you come out of the tomb of your self-righteous efforts to secure your own security for yourself? Will you come out of the tomb of your own intellect? Will you come out of the tomb of your own trauma? Will you come out of the tomb of your own brokenness and shame? Will you come out of the tomb when you hear the powerful, loving word of God call you 
by name. And what happens is that now, as a result of this, now there are two dead men walking. Jesus guarantees his own death. Why does that matter? Because what we see here is an illustration of the gospel of grace itself, which is this. Jesus exchanges his life for yours. Jesus exchanges his life for yours so that you can experience life from the dead places, so that you can experience an eternal life that begins now and will go on forever. Jesus exchanges his life for yours, that by dying on the cross, Jesus makes the way he rolls away the tomb for you to walk out into the life that you have been created to live, trusting that even in the face of death, God is love. When we cannot see it, when we cannot prove it, we come back to Jesus' words, do you trust me? So how do we experience the life of Jesus in the midst of our own brokenness and death? First, we need to realize that it's often not in the place that we most look for God's presence, that that is where God is to be found. God's transformation, God's gracious transformation, that Lazarus, did nothing to earn or deserve. It just happened. And the same is true for you and for me. God's gracious transformation is found in your losses and limitations. Hidden beneath the pain and the brokenness and the loss, that's where God's word, God's presence, God's love for you is to be found and where the transformation is possible. And the alternative by way of reminder, is that hurt people hurt people. But healed people heal people. And it's in the places of our hurt that we can experience the healing of God's renewing power and love by grace, not because of anything that we can think or prove or disprove or know, but because it comes to us in the places that we don't often look for it. So how do we look for it? We go into our loss and our limitation, and we embrace them. The place of our losses and our limitation, we embrace them. The writer, a church historian, uh, Jerry Sitzer, uh, who wrote a book called A Grace Disguised, which is uh, his attempt to do what I'm doing now after uh, experiencing a car accident that took his mother, his wife, and his daughter. 
And he writes this, loss forces us to see the dominant role our environment plays in determining our happiness. Loss strips us of the props we rely on for our well-being, and it knocks us off our feet and puts us on our backs. In the experience of loss, we come to the end of ourselves. But in coming to the end of ourselves, we can also come to the beginning of a vital relationship with God. Loss is both a dead end and a doorway into the gracious love and power of God. And so we embrace them by following sort of the path of emotionally healthy spirituality, which we've talked about this before, but there are, according to Pete Scazzaro, kind of summing up the wisdom here, that there are three phases of processing grief and loss. And not, not that these are these linear pattern of one step, then step two, then step three, but in this sort of spiral staircase of life, we continue to circle around these three categories of, of understanding, knowing what we're looking at when we're looking at grief and loss. And the first thing is to pay attention to the pain. And this is often the hardest thing to do because we want to run away from the pain. We want to numb the pain. We want to avoid the pain because of what it provokes in us. And this is where our communities come in to help. This is where uh, spiritual directors and pastors can help. This is where therapists can be of tremendous help, is helping us pay attention to the pain. And then second, we wait in the confusing in-between. We don't know exactly where this is going to go or what it's going to look like on the other side of this. It's confusing. It's disorienting. And then third, we allow the old to birth the new. These are the three ways that we pay attention to processing grief and loss. I think the invitation for us today as we close, my sisters and brothers, is that there are ways that each of us individually needs to engage in the process of embracing our loss and our limitations, whether it's of a relationship or of our age or our stage or our finances or a relationship or whatever the case may be. We all have some sort of loss or limit that we are being invited this morning into embracing. And this is an invitation to us as a community as well. That many of us who have been around this place for a number of years feel the pain that things are not like they used to be. That people we know and love are no longer here for one reason or another. The invitation is to pay attention to that not run away from it. We might be a little bit in this confusing in-between. We might be in a season of wilderness wandering where we're between what has come before and what will come ahead. And we're invited to trust 
that by the grace of God, that renewal will come from what has come before. That something new is being birthed. And we are invited to join in on that. Amen.